Welcome to The Chain, the podcast exploring the lives, careers, research, and discoveries of protein engineers, scientists, and biotech professionals. We look at the impact their work is having on the field and where the industry is headed. Tune in to stay up to date on the newest advancements and to hear the stories that are impacting the world of biologics. Okay, good day everyone. My name is Brandon Dukoski. I'm an assistant professor at MIT and the Reagan Institute. And I'm here with Andrew Anzalone. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Brandon. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Great to be with you too. Uh, so Andrew is the uh, proud winner of the PEGS Young Scientist keynote. So he's going to be talking about uh, his work and uh, some of the exciting things that he's been uh, doing in the gene editing space at PEGS in uh, just a, a couple of months now. Um, so in advance of that, uh, Andrew, it's a pleasure to be here and chat with you about your work and some of the exciting new things in gene editing. Yeah, I think it'll be a lot of fun. So, so um, Andrew, as we get started, um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background and training that brought you into this area? Yeah, sure. It's uh, it's kind of quite the tortuous path, I think, that I took, but a, I think an interesting one and one that's been really exciting and rewarding for me. So um, I started out actually in my undergraduate days as a, a an organic chemistry major at college. And essentially all the research that I did at that time was as inorganic chemistry over the summers. I worked in drug discovery at a small pharmaceutical company, uh, trying to identify uh, kinase inhibitors. Uh, and what that really did was, I think, opened my eyes to the way you can apply science to medicine, to develop therapeutics. And, and I thought that was a really exciting thing to do uh, with your career. And, and it made me really interested in a path that combined both medicine and science. So I I went forward after graduating college to, to do an MD-PhD uh, at Columbia University, so a combined program where I did both medical school and, and a PhD program. Uh, and in my PhD, I started out in chemistry as I had left off in, in college, but sort of eventually veered into biochemistry and, and even uh, uh, engineering of proteins and RNA in yeast. So I, I really ended up uh, learning a lot of molecular biology in those days and, and getting exposed to a lot of new concepts, uh, sort of in chemical biology and 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 in synthetic biology. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask, Andrew, um, when you were doing your MD-PhD, because I know like that's like two different worlds. How did you feel like it was balanced in, in your experience at, at Columbia? Yeah, I, mean, I think they tried their best to make it uh, as intertwined as possible. But in a lot of ways, they're somewhat orthogonal disciplines in the sense that in, in medicine, you need to really learn a lot, uh, absorb a lot of information, master it, and, and learn how to apply it in a, in a clinical setting. So the first half of medical school is very didactic, where you do all your coursework. The second half, much more applied on the wards in the clinic. Uh, and they basically, and the when I did the program, you you do your PhD wedged in between those two halves of medical school. Um, and during the PhD years, you always have opportunities to go back to the clinic, kind of brush up on some of your your clinical skills that you may be may be rusting. Um, but but in a lot of ways, it was a full on you know fully immersed PhD where you know all of my focus essentially was on my my research 
which I think was important for for me, and and I really enjoyed that side of it. And and returning to medical school with that scientific perspective, I think really helped me understand why things are done the way they are in medicine. So it was really nice, I thought, in terms of getting a very well-rounded educa- education in medicine and and science, and and seeing how they they influence one another. Yeah, that's that's great to get all those perspectives. Um, and I know it 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 takes a little while to do that. The MD PhDs take some time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. That's that's great to have gotten all that experience, which I'm sure is really helpful uh, these days as well. I think it is, and you know, there was eight years or so of of that program, but I think I came out the other end with with a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience, and and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, and I think it really did set me up for what what ultimately I, I want to do with my career, which is to focus on you know again applying science uh, towards developing therapeutics. So after I finished medical school, you know, I really at that point had decided I, w- I was really interested in in research and wanted to commit to that. Um, so I decided to do a postdoc, uh, and and at that time I also wanted to get back uh, to something that was very therapeutically relevant. And and at the time, sort of gene editing, which we'll talk a little bit more about, this field was sort of exploding, um, sort of in response to the development of and the discovery of the CRISPR-Cas systems, which we'll talk about. Um, and David Liu's group at the Broad Institute was really doing some exciting work in that area, and and I thought that would be a perfect fit for my background and my interests. So. I went on to do a postdoc at the Broad Institute in, in David's lab, which is where I worked on uh, developing prime editing, uh, which eventually uh, spun out to to this company that I now work at, Prime Medicine. Uh, and I'm working now at Prime Medicine as the the head of the platform team, where we uh, work to further develop the technology and broaden its uh, sort of applicability and and its translatability to therapeutics. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and and so, just curious, how long? Were you at Broad Institute in uh, David Liu's lab before you transitioned to Prime? So I was only in David's lab for for two years, and unfortunately, it was also partially, uh, I guess, not not eclipsed or cut short, but uh, it did overlap with the pandemic. So <laughs> some of my time there was a little bit unusual, perhaps. Um, but I, I think it was a fantastic environment, a great group of colleagues. Uh, many of whom have joined Prime Medicine and and work here uh, alongside with me. So a really amazing environment where you know we had all the support we needed to develop these new gene editing technologies, uh, and you know fortunately that also enabled us to do it really quickly. So you know after starting my postdoc within about I think it was almost exactly a year we had submitted our our Prime editing um, manuscript for for publication. So. Um, really able to move really quickly, uh, just given the expertise and, and resources that were present in David's lab. Um, and then, you know, in the second half of that postdoc, I, I started doing a little bit more work to expand prime editing. Uh, but as I, as I mentioned, we had a little bit of a hiccup along the way with with the pandemic, and and I transitioned to to prime medicine um, just around that two year mark. Wow, that's great. That's great. Um, so I know a lot of the audience probably doesn't have um, that all the same background in gene editing. Um, maybe you could give us a bit of a historical overview about uh, some of the earliest approaches in gene editing and, um, you know, kind of what the use cases are and the earliest technologies and kind of uh, set the stage for um, where we are now. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I could I, I could start off by kind of broadly describing what gene editing is and 
you know, typically the way we think about it is that we're going to make a very specific modification to the DNA in our genomes at a very specific place um, so that we can affect the function of a gene. Um, so, you know, the simplest way to think about this is this, is to think about a genetic disease. And, and one that most people have heard of is sickle cell disease. It's caused by a single A to T uh, base substitution in a gene called hemoglobin. Uh, and and a principle of gene editing is that you could go to that specific location in the genome and change that base mutation back to the wild type sequence and then potentially cure or fix you know that that person's uh, inherited genetic disease which in this case is sickle cell anemia um and and that's the idea behind gene editing so if you think about what that really takes you need this system that's on the one hand, incredibly specific. It should go just to that one place in the genome and nowhere else. Uh, it should be really uh, precise in the sense that it only makes the change that you intend to make. It should be programmable. And this is a really key thing. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to say a little bit more about it later when we talk about CAS, CRISPR-Cas systems. But programmable means you can pick a location in the genome and make your gene editing system go there, and then very quickly go to a different place in the genome by by some type of rule or design principle that it lets you uh, change the target site in the genome. And, and just to remind everybody, we humans have about three billion base pairs of DNA in their genome, so finding a very specific place is, is not a small task. And being able to quickly change where you target is also not a not a simple feat. So uh, all the advances in gene editing are largely built upon these programmable DNA targeting systems. So what else do you want? You want a system that's versatile in the types of changes it can make. I gave you that example of sickle cell disease. It's an A to T based substitution. But there are other diseases like cystic fibrosis, for example, where a large number of patients have a three nucleotide deletion. So three bases are removed from their uh, the 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 anion channel uh, that's important for for their lung health. So uh, an ideal gene editing system would be able to make both of those changes and make the right one at the right place. And of course, it needs to be efficient enough for for you to actually have a therapeutic effect for patients if if that's the intention. So earlier technologies really began by finding you know trying to address the programmable problem. So how do you make these gene editing systems that can go to a place in the genome that you specify. And they are largely built on, on proteins that uh, recognize specific DNA sequences, so zinc fingers, for example, or talons. And, and these tended to be um, you know, uh, fused to other protein domains that could cut DNA, so fusion to nuclease domains. So you could target a very specific place in the genome uh, uh, with with these proteins and make a double strand break in the DNA, and that might not seem like it's uh, you know a way to necessarily fix a mutation, and in and of itself it, it typically isn't. But these double strand breaks can um, can uh, change the DNA uh, when the DNA gets repaired by uh, machinery in the cell that tends to be a little bit error prone. So if you think about the two strands falling apart when they get put back together kind of glued back together, it's a little messy and it ends up making a couple small changes at that site. So these are the sort of nucleus gene editors. They're really nice for disrupting genes. So if there is a way to have a therapeutic effect by knocking out a gene, these nucleus systems are, are really good at that, mm -hmm. um, but obviously limited in other ways. So how did things change 
you know, moving on from these 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 uh, zinc finger nucleases and tail nucleases. So in around 2012, uh, as many of you probably know, the CAS CRISPR Cas system uh, was sort of uh, uh, really um, uh, really unearthed, I would say, uh, from bacteria. This was a system that is RNA programmable. The the sequence in the genome that is targeted is encoded by a guide RNA. So this is a little piece of RNA that can be used to tell you kind of like a little genomic address where you should go in the genome. It just has to match that sequence. So this other protein called Cas or Cas9 kind of links up with this guide RNA and that guide RNA can bring it to that very precise place in the genome. And then you as a researcher can go and change that guide sequence and change that sort of molecular address and go to a new place in the genome. And it's very simple to change, very easy to design. It's it's simple Watson-Crick base pairing rules. So that really transformed things because it made it a lot easier to move from place to place uh, in the genome. But CRISPR-Cas9 also uh, is still just the nuclease, meaning that when you target a place in the genome with this system, it makes a double-strand break, and it makes the same type of edits as those other nucleases that came before it, um, which which is just these sort of disruptive small changes that typically are called indels. Um, so I, I would say that you know while that was a huge jump forward in our ability to easily and rapidly reprogram a gene editing system, it wasn't necessarily the solution, the full solution that we were looking for, which is to make any type of change at that sequence that we'd like to make. Uh, and that's sort of where the next generation of of gene editing tools, largely built off of CRISPR-Cas9, kind of came into play. Mm-hmm. So, so, it, so CRISPR-Cas9 really gave that programmable aspect that was a lot harder with the like zinc finger domains. Is that that's correct? Yeah, it made it a lot more. Uh, it's not that the zinc fingers couldn't be programmed, and even other nucleases like meganucleases could be engineered to find new target sites, but the sort of complexity around doing that with CRISPR-Cas9 was just so, so much less. You just simply change a a sequence of 20 bases in a guide RNA and you change the target site as opposed to having to engineer proteins or, or learn about the sort of design principles of DNA protein interactions in these, in these zinc finger arrays. So I think it just greatly facilitated that reprogramming step within yeah. a very robust way as well. Yeah. And like the the talons and the zinc finger nucleases um were those specific enough to uh you know translate effectively to clinical therapeutics or did they still have some specificity uh gaps as well? Yeah, they they definitely have been applied for for you know therapeutic applications. Um you know there's I think still a big challenge is is having high on-target editing efficiency with those nucleus systems. I think the off-targets aren't as likely to be the concern there, or or, or not necessarily the the, the, the any. The, I don't think that's what would be holding them back in any way. And, and in many ways, they may still have a lot of applications. Um, but the the sort of uh, robustness of the CRISPR-Cas system to target a new DNA sequence and and edit it very efficiently has has made that a very attractive path forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. It's it's just been such a, a step jump uh, in and really has opened 
so many doors in in uh, you know even basic biology, for example, the ability to rapidly uh, change genes, uh, engineer cell lines, even doing you know in vitro and ex vivo CRISPR based screens for gene knockouts and things like that. That's just yeah, it's phenomenal. Um, those, yeah, those approaches have been transformational. I mean, I mean, there's now probably hundreds of papers evaluating you know whole genome wide knockout screens that affect particular biological processes and and have really rapidly you know it has really accelerated our ability to identify genes involved in these processes so it's it's been really important yeah yeah that's that's amazing and and so cool that that uh you know you've been working at the center of pushing uh these technologies forward also um so how how does your work from the um your your postdoc at Broad Institute and now uh, with your work at Prime Editing uh, fit in that context of the space? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And as I alluded to before, the CRISPR-Cas system uh, that was developed in the early days uh, by you know the pe- people like Jennifer Doudna, Manuel Charpentier, Feng Zhang. George Church, these these folks showed that you could modify genes in human cells in this programmable way. But again, it was often by disrupting those those genes by making double strand breaks. And so it's very challenging to make a precise change using double strand breaks. There's a pathway called homologous recombination or homology-directed repair, where you can provide a piece of DNA that encodes the change you want to make. And sometimes the cells will use that as a template when it's fixing the DNA and incorporate the edit that you'd like to make. But the problem is in the vast majority of cell types, especially those of therapeutic relevance, that pathway is not very active or is completely inactive in those cells. So what you don't really end up with is any of that change that you wanted to make. And instead, all these other changes, these small deletions or small insertions that disrupt genes, because that's the much more active repair pathway. Mm-hmm. So there was a need for making a sort of next generation approach to gene editing that enabled more precise changes and ones that you could control. And the first version of that, in, in my opinion, was base editing, which was also developed in David Liu's lab. Uh, and this was a technology that was able to use deaminase enzymes to make single base substitutions that could convert a C to a T or an A to a G. And that allowed you to do a lot more things that you can, you know, that weren't possible before. You can now correct some of these base pair substitution mutations, um, and that was really an exciting development. And it continues to be a very exciting potential path forward for therapeutics. Mm-hmm. Um, but that still is limited in the sense that it can only make it can only make four out of the total twelve possible base substitution edits, and it also can't make precise insertion or precise deletion edits. Um, It really is restricted to just these four base pair substitutions. Mm -hmm. So what we really were looking for was a technology that could kind of do all of the things that you might want to do, Um, a technology that could address that single A to T change that occurs in sickle cell disease, and a technology that could address that three base deletion that occurs in cystic fibrosis. And that was really the motivation for developing prime editing, which is the technology that I developed in David Liu's lab. The whole principle behind prime editing is that you're going to combine this programmability for target site recognition that this CRISPR-Cas system has. So you can tell it where to go by just giving it a sequence in the RNA that tells it the the address in the genome. And on that same piece of RNA, you're going to give it instructions for what the edit should be. 
So you give it a so-called template for for edits um, that could encode a base pair substitution or a two-base insertion or a three-base deletion. So you can just as easily program the change that you're making to the genome while also programming where in the genome it goes. And that's why we kind of gave it this name, search and replace uh, genome editing. And the way that it works is that uh, it uses uh, the CRISPR-Cas system to target the DNA and nick just a single strand, not both strands of DNA. So it, it avoids these double-strand breaks that are often repaired in a very uh, error-prone way to make these, these small insertion deletion byproducts. So by just nicking one of the strands, you avoid that. And that one nicked strand of DNA can serve as a primer for a reverse transcription reaction using that RNA molecule as a template for reverse transcription. Uh, and and this requires a reverse transcriptase a reverse transcriptase enzyme that's brought along with the with the Cas9. So we call that full protein fusion a prime editor protein. So a Cas9 nickase fused to a, a reverse transcriptase enzyme, for example. And so now at the very site that you've targeted with this CRISPR Cas9 system, uh, you've written in new edited DNA sequence that can incorporate into the DNA and incorporate eventually into both strands. Through, through DNA repair and make a very precise change uh, and any change that you want to make. So that's really the the basic uh, sort of premise of the technology. And we've shown that it can make a number of different changes at a number of different sites in the genome uh, and, and has very broad uh, uh, applicability for fixing inherited genetic mutations. So if you look at databases that tell you what do human genetic mutations look like that cause disease, and then ask the question, how many of these could we, in principle, correct with prime editing? You find that it's about 90% of those mutations. So a really large set of things that we could potentially address with this technology. Wow. That's great. And the 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 ones that you think you would have difficulty addressing are those like really long insertions or, you know, chromosomal aberrations that, you know, you might have an extra chromosome or something like that? Yeah, those are, you know, those are great examples of things where, uh, you know, the technology itself could not directly correct. So, uh, you know, uh, trisomy, for example, where you have an extra entire chromosome or micro deletions of per certain, certain chromosomes that delete multiple genes. These would be very challenging to directly correct uh, with prime editing or any other technology right now. But there could still be ways to use gene editing to intervene on the biological pathways that are affected by those those changes. So a very common approach that's used actually for sickle cell disease and, and beta thalassemia is actually not to fix the mutations that those patients inherited, but actually to make another change in the cell that upregulates the expression of a, another protein called fetal hemoglobin, which is able to sort of compensate for the, the issue that's caused by the, the sickle mutation or by the missing uh, uh, hemoglobin that, that occurs in, in beta thalassemia. So I think there'll be plenty of examples like this where you can't actually make the exact change that converts that gene, that, that, that person's DNA back to what is, is, is healthy, but you might make another change that can compensate and also have a therapeutic effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that there's a lot of um, uh, observational support for that kind of an approach. You know, a lot of people that may have a genetic disease on one copy of their chromosome, uh, they don't have it on the other copy. And, uh, you know, that that either gives ameliorated ameliorated effects or uh, no effects, depending on how dominant the um, mutation can be. So, yeah, Absolutely. I think... 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of opportunities, maybe even if not correcting that, that one mutation to, um, you know, find other pathways that, that can help support. So that's, that's, that's great. Um, yeah. how does your clinical training, uh, influence your work at prime? Do you, do you bring a lot of the, a lot of the MD part of the MD, MD PhD to your work day? Yeah, I think it's actually been incredibly helpful for me. Um, I, I started very early on at the company when I think I was employee number five or so. And at that time, we, you know, we were just a few people that, uh, that had a, a genome editing technology, but didn't, hadn't picked any actual diseases to work on yet. So a really big part of that initial, uh, initial few months was a process to select indications and find out where we would be working. Um, so we reviewed many different disease areas, the genetics, sort of clinical features of those diseases. Uh, and throughout that process, just having a familiarity with those different diseases uh, uh, and sort of the unmet need that existed for them, uh, I thought was really helpful for me evaluating them. And and it continues to this day. We we constantly are going undergoing a process of evaluating new potential indications where we can apply prime editing. And And I think it's a really exciting sort of extra almost for me in my job, uh, you know, a little bit outside of my my normal day job, which is focusing on the technology, but this bit of extra work that I get to think about the diseases and and relate back all of my experiences during medical school. When, when see, you see these patients in, in, the, in the hospital and, and really they have no treatment options. And that's really what we're working for is to develop something for these patients. So it serves as both, you know, from an educational standpoint, uh, it's incredibly supportive and helpful, but also just from a you know motivation standpoint and understanding what the mission is, you know, I have something to look back on and remind me of why we're here and what we're trying to do. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, so my, I, you know, my, my research area is uh, actually focused not as much on genetic diseases, but um, more in a lot of immune engineering, uh, antibodies, T cell receptors, and I know there's been a lot of uh, growth in cell-based therapeutics. Um, do you guys have a, a focus on any areas in, um, you know, kind of immune biotech, uh, things like that? Yeah, yeah, we do, in fact. Um, and this is some information we've recently shared. But, um, you know, in, in terms of what I described to you now, we're talking about gene editing as an approach to fix or address pretty small changes to DNA, like a base pair substitution change, again, or small insertion or deletion of a few nucleotides. There are certain cases where, uh, for example, in, in developing immunotherapies or cell therapies, where ultimately what you have to do is a bit more synthetic. You need to, in, you need to integrate or add to the cell an entire new gene that has some therapeutic uh, some therapeutic uh, uh, capability. So a good example of that is a CAR T cell. So these are T cells that are immune cells of the body that have been engineered to recognize a particular antigen on the surface of, of cancer cells, uh, at least uh, in a lot of the early uh, CAR T work, that's what they're, they're trying to do. And these, these CAR receptors are chimeric antigen receptors uh, need to be integrated into the genome of those cells. And that can be done with a few different technologies, a few different approaches, um, one of which uh, we're working on, which is to do it in a very targeted manner at a very specific place in the genome. So the other approaches could be to have it use, use technologies like lentivirus that integrate that uh, CAR construct somewhat randomly in the genome. 
Um, and there have been studies that have found that that may not be as effective as, as integrating it in a very specific place. So we've been able to show that we can modify T cells uh, uh, with efficiency of around 60% of cells that have a targeted integration of, of, of a, a particular therapeutic transgene uh, at a very specified locus. And, and this is, I think, a really interesting next sort of future sort of generation of, of gene editing technologies or genome engineering technologies where uh, we can really expand, you know, the capabilities of cell therapies and things that are a little bit more uh, synthetic and, and and driven by engineering as opposed to just trying to correct a mutation. So I think there's a huge amount of potential there. Many, many companies that are in the gene editing space have programs in, in the T-cell uh, immuno-oncology area. So I, I think it's going to be a, a, a big a big deal for for gene editing and genome engineering moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I, I completely agree. I, you know, I've seen a lot of studies tracking different, um, you know, of course, when when CAR T's are made with uh, lentivirus, you get many different insertion sites uh, and different clones and some of those clones end up dominating over time. And I think we're learning a lot by seeing what are the uh, clones that survive? Where are those insertion sites? And and what um, where could we best insert for you know an optimal therapy uh, and things like that? So I yeah uh, absolutely. And the knowledge of that is what drives this. You know the the tools can only <laughs> the tools let you do what you want to do, but you first have to decide the right thing to do. So you know understanding where in the genome to integrate things, how they should be expressed. That's just as important, and you know we're we're doing this by combining really two different two different protein. We use the prime editing to to target the integration to the site in the genome, but the actual integration event is carried out by our combinase enzyme mm-hmm. that can very specifically uh, integrate large pieces of DNA. So, um, you know, we're, we're kind of trying to put together these different approaches, and and a lot of it is informed by the biology in terms of what you should do. And I think the toolbox is growing, and it's really the how do you use it is the next big question here. Yeah, absolutely. So when I think about like the challenge of gene editing and the challenges of curing diseases by gene editing, the way I the way I sometimes think about it in my mind is like you've got these like challenge levels where, you know, there's there's like the easier levels of gene editing, maybe like ex vivo single base pair correction uh, and you can purify cells for that, uh, or, you know, ex vivo insertions. Um, and then, you know, you can find the cells that are doing things, the right things, and then put them back in the body. And then the next step up is like in vivo, small changes with low efficiency being okay. And then there's some applications where you need like targeted delivery in vivo, high efficiency insertions or multiple insertions and deletions. Um, you know, where where would you say we are in that spectrum of all the different challenge levels? And, um, you know, maybe if you could calibrate us on what 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 do you see as addressable right now versus uh, things that, um, you know, we're, we're kind of still still in progress or at early stage? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The ex vivo editing space, which is really taking cells out of the body, putting them into a Petri dish, treating them with your gene editing systems and then putting them back into the body. This is really amenable to things like uh, immune cells, or blood cells or hematopoietic stem cells. 
This is for sure uh, very far along um, and is not limited by the challenge of delivery, which which becomes relevant in vivo. So mm-hmm. the next vivo system setting, it's it's quite uh, straightforward to deliver the gene editing components to to the cells and to a pure population of those cells. Often, when you move in vivo, as you noted, uh, uh, there's sort of different levels of difficulty that are dependent on how much editing you need to have to have a therapeutic effect. So certain diseases, just a few percent of the functional gene, a few percent of cells that that now express that functional gene would be enough. I think a good example of that is, is PKU or phenylketonuria, where just a little bit more, a little bit of that enzyme is enough to metabolize phenylalanine in the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. Some other diseases, though, are going to require much higher levels of editing to have a real have real uh, efficacy. So and it's not always clear what that is because there aren't a lot of people walking around that have 40% of their cells with a correction and the other 60% with, with the mutation. And it's not always as straightforward as sort of uh, as as the um, uh, recessive sort of alleles because then in those cases, every cell has 50% of the gene and it's not, it's not a, it's not a chimera. Um, so there's, there are challenges in even identifying that target point, but we definitely know for some diseases, it's much higher than others. And then I would say in that in vivo setting, so you're administering this therapeutic directly to the person, um, the liver is, is sort of the easier tissue or organ to target. Um, the liver is, takes up very efficiently, uh, AAV or adeno-associated virus, which could be used to deliver the gene editing system, uh, as well as lipid nanoparticles that could carry RNA that encodes the components to do the gene editing. And we've seen a lot of success with these modalities um, already, AAV more in, in the gene therapy space, but lipid nanoparticles have, have gained a lot of traction for gene editing in vivo of the liver. Uh, and we've seen some good, good, uh, you know, demonstrations of of that in humans now, uh, targeting TTR, the the gene that's responsible for TTR mediated amyloidosis. So uh, I think that's a really promising avenue, and and could open up a lot of doors for therapeutic applications. Now, when you go beyond these these tissues or, or cell types to other organs like the heart, to the central nervous system and brain, to muscle. Uh, it's a lot more challenging to deliver to those cells right now. We have some modalities like viruses that that can get us their virus ve- viral vectors, um, but but they're not um, necessarily uh, at the level of uh, the delivery to the liver. So um, they're still a major challenge, and there's a lot of opportunity there if we can figure that out. I'd say the last group of things in terms of tissues are compartments like the the eye or the ear, where you can locally administer things in vivo. And you don't have to deal with this challenge of, of administering the therapeutic systemically. Um, so they have a lot of uh, good potential applications as well without uh, as much of the challenge on the delivery standpoint. But but I would really say the delivery would unlock many, many opportunities if, if that could be uh, improved. And, and, and as you also rightly mentioned, the sort of the type of edit you're going to make or the size of the edit will also affect the difficulty. So making a single base pair change uh, might be a lot more straightforward than replacing an entire gene. Uh, and it relates to how much uh, how much you have to deliver, basically, of that, that replacement DNA sequence. So I think, you know, I'm hopeful that a lot of these challenges will be addressed. It's really early days for gene editing. It's, you know, just recently entered the clinic in the last few years. And I think there's huge potential there. So I'm really excited to see what happens.
Yeah, me as well. Me as well. Um, I actually, on that note, wh- what do you see happening over the next ten years or so in genome editing? Um, you know, not necessarily only at Prime, but also in the you know in the broader field. What do you? How do you see things changing over the next decade or so? Yeah, well, I can say what I what I hope to see and what I think we'll see is you know some first early demonstrations of both safe and effective genome editing. Uh, for therapeutic applications. And this will, I think, be in in the ex vivo setting for treatment of diseases like sickle cell and beta thalassemia, and also in vivo for diseases, like I mentioned, like like, uh, transthyretin amyloidosis. So I think we're going to see some early signs of success, mostly initially using these gene disruption technologies, as those were the ones developed earlier on and are, as a result, a little further ahead. Um, what I hope to see is that, you know, as this technology has matured, so will the clinical translation of the technology and will move towards making more and more precise changes uh, uh, to, to the genome where we can correct mutations back to wild type or back to the original sequence. Uh, and I'm also hopeful, and this I think may go beyond the 10-year horizon that you that you bounded this with, but I'm, I'm also hopeful that we can start to develop gene editing systems that are a little bit more personalized to the patient. So I gave you that example of sickle cell disease, that A to T based change that every patient with sickle cell disease has. There's no patient with sickle cell disease that doesn't have that mutation. Mm-hmm. But that's not true for most diseases. Most most inherited genetic diseases, the landscape of mutations in the patient population is, is very broad. And there could be hundreds or thousands of different mutations found in those patients. So developing one therapeutic for for that that addresses each one of them presents a bit of a challenge. And it's a challenge on the regulatory standpoint and on the sort of drug development uh, you know, side of things. And what I'm hopeful that we'll see is you know, regulators and also the industry as a whole solve this challenge and enable us to deliver medicines to these patients that address their mutation and, and not have to go through a lot of hoops and jump through over a lot of hurdles before we can do that. So kind of making this personalized gene editing uh, and end of one a little bit more of a reality. Uh, I think that may take a little longer, as I, as I said, but um, I think I'd really love to see that because in my opinion, there's Nothing better than just the simple change back to the patients, you know, back to the healthy version of the sequence that they that they would have in that DNA. Yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, yeah, I that that's just. I, I think it's going to happen at some point, and I, I think it it could be soon. Um, I know the FDA is really working hard on figuring out the right framework for, you know, like you said, the N of one patients, um, personalized clinical trials. Um, There's a lot going on in oncology as well that I think the FDA is using as uh, a lot of the framework as well as uh, in genetic diseases um, to try to figure out how to, how how can we, how can we demonstrate that uh, a medication is safe when we're only using it to treat one person? It's, it's, um, it's it's a great challenge to have. It is, and it's a somewhat new challenge. So I you know I, I appreciate that this hasn't been the case for most diseases or, or approaches that we would use to treat diseases. But um, you know now it's here, so I think I think we'll have to address it. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, you know um, you know beyond the science, uh, you know kind of one last question: uh, how, how do you have fun here in Cambridge and Boston outside of the the gene editing life? 
Yeah, well, I do a lot of the normal things, I suppose, go to restaurants and and spend time with friends and family. But I guess the one thing that's been taking up a lot of my time recently is is planning my wedding, which will be in about three weeks from today. So that's been one of my key <laughs> key out of work activities for the last Amazing. couple of months. It's been a lot. Congratulations! Of fun. I, I don't know how you I don't know how you found time to sit down for an interview with that coming up. Yeah, I credit my fiance to a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the prep work for our wedding and organizing things. But yeah, uh, she's done an excellent job. I try to help out as much as I can. Oh, that's wonderful! That's wonderful. Well, Andrew, it was so great to talk with you. Um, very excited uh, to catch up with you at at Pegs and beyond. And um, yeah, to everyone listening, uh, please come stop by Pegs, and uh, by then. Um, uh, Andrew should be uh, newly married, so you can congratulate him on the wedding as well. You can hope. Uh, thanks so much, Brad. It was a real, real pleasure. A lot of fun talking to you today. Likewise. Thanks, Andrew, and uh, thanks everyone for listening in.